This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard. This episode is presented by Happy Farm Botanicals. Happy Farm Botanicals is a leader in custom solutions for prestige brands specializing in non-toxic and natural formulations. Hi, I'm Susan Woods, principal of The Woods & Co., and to me, it's a matter of candor. Technology, social media, and the rise of influencer marketing changed the business of public relations forever. I'm Kelly Kovac, founder of Beauty Matter. Change is good, but it isn't always easy. The one-way communication funnel of traditional PR that carefully placed and controlled the message of clients evolved into the dissemination of information in real time and brands having actual conversations with their audiences. Brands are no longer in control. Consumers are. Paradigm shifts can be perceived as a problem or an opportunity, and they result in obsolescence or resilience. Susan Woods, the principal and founder of Woods & Co., has flawlessly navigated the digital evolution of media, providing a playbook for agencies and brands. So Susan, thank you for joining us today. Can you share a little bit about your background and how you came to found Woods & Co. and focus on indie beauty? Sure. Thank you for having me, Kelly. Love being here with you. So what a long, strange trip it's been. Basically, 22 years ago, I was working as the VP of development at Paramount Pictures. And I'm now professionally confident enough I can tell this story truthfully, because for a long time, I fibbed. A friend of mine came to me and he said, you look pretty miserable. Um, your job looks like it pretty much sucks. All you're doing is working on the weekend, getting paid no money. I had this lofty title, but I was miserable and I didn't know what to do with my life. And he said, I have a great idea. Let's start a PR firm. And I said, JP, honestly, I know as a journalist major and I'm a good storyteller, but PR just seems like puffery to me. And I'm not really into that kind of pushing products and people and from what I've seen in entertainment, what traditional PR people do, wasn't really that into it. He said, I just know you'd be good at it. So out of desperation and stupidity, probably at the time, we were so young that we didn't have a lot of overhead or bills to pay. We just really had meager rent in LA. I said, okay, what could be worse than what I was doing then? You know. So we founded Cryer Communications and our first client, bearing in mind this was 22 years ago, were organic food clients. And why? Because nobody else wanted the business. That is amazing. That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? Literally, I had to call reporters on the phone. This is before the computers were a big thing. Like we were still faxing, I believe. Like some people were starting to email because I remember Paramount. We had a few executives asking for pitches via email. And we're like, wow, okay. You know, but it was really at the advent of the technology Boom. So our first clients were organic food. This is right when Whole Foods started to percolate. And I would have to call people on the phone and convince them why they should make healthy choices. And the reporters, food editors at the time would say, but it tastes like crap. I'd rather not eat crap. First client was organic choice, natural soups and sorbets. I kid you not. (laughs) You you, you (laughs) You say it like you're still pitching it. 
Oh, yeah. Well, I pitched it so hard back then. I was like, please just try this stuff. And literally, they would say that was the worst tasting soup I've ever had in my life. And so I learned a lot about how to convince people to make different choices and try organic and why they should think about what they were ingesting as being important. And so we became the go-to natural food company. And I started walking the halls of Organic Natural Expo West back before it was anything but, you know, a hall filled with burgeoning companies that just hoped to make it. And now when I go to Whole Foods, I'm so proud because so many of the companies at Whole Foods, I had a hand in launching. And so um, about seven, so we built a decent sized company with offices in New York and LA. And I was flying back and forth. He, my partner had no interest in going to New York. He doesn't really like it. And I was flying back and forth. We got our foothold in New York and I started um, expanding prior to go into fitness and wellness and health and then naturally into beauty. And when you go into beauty as a PR professional, you sort of have to be in New York. You can't do it from LA as effectively. It's so relationship driven and so much of the business of beauty happens in New York that I found myself commuting between New York and LA every two weeks, even though I had a young son. So I was getting pretty tired. And my ex-husband turned to me and he's like, you can't keep up like this. And I said, yeah, you're right. And we had sort of outgrown our partnership. And so seven years ago, I said, you know, I think it's time for us to get separated, you know, my uh, business partner and I, and I took beauty, fitness, health as it pertained to anything topical. And he took anything ingestible, including food. And then most recently, of course, a couple of years ago, our non-compete dissolved and we're still really good friends. So we're sister agencies, but so here I am, New York, and I've always maintained a presence in Los Angeles, but, um, you know, beauty has really been uh, um, pretty much 80% of what we do other than some fitness and health clients. So that's how I got into indie beauty. And of course, some of my first clients were natural clients back then, seven, eight years. Ten, well, I guess it was 10 years ago now that I got into beauty. I would say it was 70, 30, 30 natural, 70 not. And now, of course, that's all changed. So it's you been know- really interesting. It's very interesting, you know, that you say you knew that it was, um, that sort of the partnership had run its course. You know, I think so many people enter partnerships and when you start a business, you know, everyone loves each other, but as, as the company evolves and people get older, very often priorities change, business dynamics change, and some people kind of stick with it, but very often the parting of ways doesn't end in friendship. It ends up being really acrimonious. How, how did you navigate that? It was really hard, actually. Um, I think JP and I had started as friends and we had just, I don't know, we tried everything from marriage counseling to all kinds of professional, you know, counselors, business coaches. And so we really had a lot of water under the bridge. We really had talked a lot about where we wanted to grow the business, what we were interested in and what we weren't. And so I think it just was a natural step that we both looked at each other and said, this isn't working. So it wasn't acrimonious at all. It was, and actually 
I talk to him all the time. We, we go vacation together. We ski together. We still fight like brother and sister, but we love each other like brother and sister. He could be one of my first calls if something happened, you know? And that's so a, I think because, yeah. That's pretty special. I think so. I mean, there's still, quite frankly, and I think he would agree if he heard this, a little bit of competitiveness between us. Um, and there's, you know, I think that's part of the reason why we sort of didn't succeed. I got the greatest piece of advice from one of the business coaches. You know, JP, every business coach I would get, JP would think, oh, that guy's a dunderhead. That guy's a dunderhead. Like, the guy doesn't know what he's talking about. So I used to work at CAA before I worked at Paramount. So I called one of the agents that I knew over at CAA and I thought, who do these big egoed entertainment guys get when they get into a partnership dispute? Who do they get? I want that guy. And it cost me a ton of money or us a ton of money to get a really simple piece of advice that sort of formed my thinking about doing business. And it's really quite simple. And I think everybody should hear this. On one side of the piece of paper, write down what you love about your job. And on the other side, write down what you don't. Chances are you're really good at, you know, doing the things you love and really not good doing the things you don't. So if you can carve a partnership into a model that enables you to focus on what you love and the other partner probably focuses on other things, you could have a kick-ass partnership. Unfortunately, in our case, um, I found that JP didn't really value what I did that much. <laughs> <laughs> he thought I was too social and like the parties and stuff like that. And, you know, we're just different. So that's, that's sort of what happened. We just busted up. You know, it's really interesting that you, you know, you, you sort of started your first agency um, when kind of business was being, was evolving because of um, technology, because I kind of feel like PR has gone through almost, I guess, in your case, a second sort of digital um, revolution, because the rise of digital technology and social media kind of created a paradigm shift for PR, for the PR industry. And that sort of one-way communication funnel of traditional PR evolved into a dissemination of information real time and brands had to have to actually have conversations with their audiences now that are very often unfiltered. Um, how has this informed your business model? Like how do you engage with clients and, and how do you actually do the work? Like, uh, you know, has how you approach sort of PR and the agency model changed? Yes, of course. I mean, I think I was very lucky in that I kind of saw it coming many years ago. And so we, you know, I remember that was one of the things that JP and I were debating. I said to him like 10 years ago, I said, print is dead. Like this is a dying breed, JP. We have to pivot. And, you know, we would have a lot of arguments about that. And that was really painful to a lot of people to reckon with. And I think that the companies that didn't do so fast enough are the ones that have really floundered. So I kind of saw it coming and was able to, you know, modernize and develop in ways that kept us relevant. And so what we immediately did was started the social media department, obviously. Um, the omni-channel opportunities that have arisen as a result of the digital 
you know, transformation of landscape, as you said, Kelly, have been so significant. And what that does, as you mentioned, is allow um, brands to talk to consumers directly, therefore having access to information that formerly they would have to hire big focus groups, studies, et cetera. Now you can really talk to your audience and think how lucky that was, especially the time when D to C sales channels have become very, very critical for brands, especially during COVID. Like all the brands that we represent, if they didn't have their digital strategy in place, as well as that D to C communication, you know, sales channel going, they're really suffering because, you know, retail obviously has been so compromised by the pandemic. So, you know, we've been doing, um, you know, we have different ways of talking to both editors and consumers. We've been, we've tried all different tactics from uh, even video death sides. This was before COVID even. I was recommending like, you know, here in New York, we, we lean on death side meetings formally before COVID. Why not have an editor in another place, whether it be, you know, secondary media market, also have access to the brand founder via digital communication strategies, including video. So I think, you know, a lot of uh, positive changes have come as a result of the digital transformation of our industry. You know, I want to talk about influencers just a little bit. You know, it, I don't know if it's just me, but it really feels like things have changed a little bit. Um, you know, there's sort of this ecosystem of some very large influencers um, who will all remain nameless, um, that kind of fueled these ridiculous self-inflicted dramas and infighting that brands sometimes got caught up in the middle of. Like all of a sudden this feels really dated. Um, yeah. you know, I mean, we all have much bigger problems in the world than what, mm -hmm. you know, influencers throwing shade at the other to remain relevant. Um, right. and, you know, I think it kind of came to a head, you know, with like, this announcement that Alicia Keys was going to, or at least it came to a head for me, you know, she, she made an announcement that she was going to launch a brand and immediately there were these influencers, you know, kind of spouting off that she had no right to start a, a beauty brand. And I'm thinking to myself, like, who made you like the, the deciding voice of who can and cannot start a beauty brand? It sort of reached this level of ridiculousness that felt so almost um, desperate and attention seeking. Um, what are you, what's your take on the current influencer landscape? Like what trends are you seeing? You know, what are consumers gravitating towards and, you know, have brands sort of changed how they're making the decision decisions of who they partner with? Well, being that we're an indie beauty, we've never played the macro game really. So most of our outreach has been confined to micro influencers who really are, um, authentic brand ambassadors for a client and just love the client. That's of course, you know, the mainstay of what we do is we try to identify who those authentic influencers are that really like the brand, because I think the consumers see through that now and they sort of know who's being paid, who's not, et cetera. And they sort of discount it as an ad. And some of them are just posting so much content. Uh, it's just redundant and it's, just become saturated. So 
the we have one brand, interestingly, that is playing in that field, and we're just helping them identify a handful of paid partnerships that will drive sales, because that tactic has been very, very um, successful for them in Ireland, in particular, where the brand was founded. So other than that, we've really not played that game. And of course, now all the rates are being completely cut. Everyone, I think the influencers know that, you know, there a lot of brands are leaning off that now to me from what I've seen and really looking for um, partnerships that are going to be, you know, ongoing and true, you know, truth in their partnerships. And I think that's what the consumer is looking for too. Like the consumer wants to see people really talk about the efficacy of a beauty brand and really believe, you know, that what they're hearing is true. They're tired of being just pitched product by influencers. I just don't, I don't know. I just don't think that that works anymore. And um, in terms of influencers, you know, they've had their own reckon, reckoning recently because if you look at so many of them have made mistakes during the pandemic in terms of being toned up or, um, you know, Black Lives Matter in terms of saying controversial things or being caught wearing something that is um, politically charged. And uh, so they've had their own reckoning, many of them. And we've been called upon to um, counsel some of them. You know, one uh, beauty brand in particular um, influencer sort of got under her hood and found her wearing a MAGA hat from years ago and really took out, took, you know, were writing all things all over um, Instagram, et cetera. And so, you know, they've become both the watchdogs and the watched. It's sort of crazy. And that's all since the advent of social media. Um, but they've had their own reckoning, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, you bring up an interesting point because we're sort of at an inflection point with social media, with kind of this social media powered transparency that's been given, that's given rise to this call out or cancel culture. And sometimes it's warranted. Sometimes, you know, you pull back the curtain and it shows people and brands for what they really are, but sometimes it feels unjustified and vindictive. And, you Mm -hmm. know, regardless of the intent, the result is the same, especially if it goes viral. And, you know, I would imagine for you, it's a bit of a minefield um, because you have to help clients manage in this landscape. You know, like, what do you do if you wake up and find out one of your clients has been outed on Estee Laundry, for example? It really depends what they've been outed for. I think we had one situation, thank God, not on Estee Laundry, but we had one situation that they were called out for not developing enough of a, a broader color palette for foundations. And, you know, it was interesting because my counsel and that of my staff was two different things. My, my staff said, tell her after her initial, you know, after she addresses, and, I, and I'm favoring what they said. Um, they said, tell this woman who owns this brand to apologize, say it's being addressed, and then not to engage in the dialogue because you have all these people, every time you answer a um, DM, they will DM five more times and then write on your, 
your post 10 more times. And next thing you know, you have this ongoing conflict that just doesn't die. Meanwhile, they're just looking for opportunities all over Instagram to call brands out. It's not really that they care so much about the respective brand. They are just, you know, opportunists who are looking for controversy. And the minute you engage in the dialogue, you're making it worse once initially addressed. And of course, you know, listening to their comments and, you know, making sure that you are addressing them and making sure you are developing a broader color palette if need be, et cetera. Of course, it's something a lot of brands have learned during this time, but, you know, just continuously engaging in the dialogue, I think, will just fuel it. Um, so I was sort of surprised to hear the counsel of my staff that they had many examples of having seen that sort of just further embroil a, a uh, company into a mess. As a brand, the relationship you have with your contract manufacturer is a fundamental part of the supply chain and your success. Happy Farm Botanicals marries innovation with old-fashioned customer service. Located in the D.C. metro area, Happy Farm Botanicals is a leader in custom solutions for prestige brands specializing in non-toxic and natural formulations. Their full-time in-house team works with brands from ideation to product development through manufacturing and fill. For more information, visit happyfarmbotanicals.com. Do you advise clients to have a crisis management plan in, in place in the off chance like some uh, like something like that happens because you know it happens more and more frequently and when it happens it moves fast what i would advise is that you have a solid team of advisors around you that you can tap right immediately and that are always available uh, because i think you know if you do have a pr firm if you're lucky of course they can be very reactive to any crisis with certain crises that have arisen, especially of late, I mean, to have a plan in place really wouldn't have applied necessarily to the crisis at hand. So you have to be very reactive. And I think key is something that I've always counseled is to be transparent and authentic, you know, in your communication. Because if you are that, the consumer will always forgive you know, we are human, you know, to be human is to make mistakes and to err. So we'll always make mistakes as humans. Of course, if we don't make them, you know, if we unknowingly make them without ill intent, or, you know, if we unknowingly make them without any attempt to deceive the consumer, then of course, the crisis communication plan is more easily enacted. Brands that have, you know, lied, quite frankly, to the consumer or to the press or the ones that really land themselves in it, right? Like in terms of their formulations or ingredients being natural and they're not. And we've seen all these kinds of problems over the past that they had to come out and say, look, I'm sorry, it was a huge mistake. I think those mistakes are less forgivable than ones that have been made during the pandemic. Obviously, you know, we have to be sensitive we have to be mindful that a lot of people are going through very challenging situations right now. And of course, the BLM movement just, you know, is horrible to watch television every night to see what's going on around this country. So I think brands just have to be, you know, on top of mind on the news and know what's going 
on and uh, be continually transparent and authentic. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's one of those times where, you know, I, I I think I'm very happy to be sitting on the sidelines because I I can't imagine having to navigate sort of the business realities of trying to keep a brand kind of growing when retail is shut down. You know, that kind of takes one type of thinking. And then, you know, to to be dealing with really profound kind of cultural issues that require attention almost requires a completely different skill set and they're happening at the same time and i and i think it's you know it's compounded by sort of this call out culture environment because i've talked to a lot of brands and i'm sure you have too that have the best of intentions and want to fix things but are afraid of having the conversation for in fear of of misstepping. And I think it's a little sad because I think the way forward is probably through a lot of very awkward conversations. I think it's the only way we grow, but it, there's not really a very safe way at the moment to do that. I agree. And I'm fortunate in that I have a diverse staff and I've always talked to them very openly about issues prior to BLM, prior to the pandemic. I've always been, you know, mindful of like their own journey. And so now frequently our clients will say, what do you think? And what I think might be different than what they think. And so I'm fortunate that I can call them and say, you guys, I'm asking you. And um, I think that it is awkward. And if I did not know them so well, because they've been on my staff for a while and long before the pandemic, I would feel very um you know, afraid about approaching them with certain topics. But now I have that comfort zone. I just think, you know, having people in your life, again, harking back to that advisory board that you can really lean on for counsel during difficult times because no one's going to have the infrastructure in place, especially in indie beauty, to be able to navigate all situations all the time. I mean, the pandemic, as we said, has presented its own set of, you know, problems as well as now this, you know, the BLM movement and the social unrest in this country and all the things that we're dealing with, with regard to navigating the upcoming election, like this is a multi-layered moment in time that is unprecedented. Nobody really has, there's no clear solutions. You know, that's there's so many, you know, points of discussion and ongoing dialogue, and we don't really know what's around the corner. And so I think just, again, I think it's really helpful to have good friends and a solid business advisory board that you can reach out to during these times and say, what do you think? Yeah. Do you, I mean, do you think that brands have a, like that their role is sort of to react to to how consumers are feeling or, you know, should they be leading a new narrative or is it some combination thereof? It really, I think, is some combination. It really is so specific to what the who the brand founders are, um, and what you know. It's it's really very specific as to what the brand is. Like we have certain brands that solely talk to um, the African American community, but they were founded by people who are not African American, so they have to be very very careful about you know, how they're talking to people and, you know, how they're listening to their community and what their community's concerns are. 
And so, you know, it's, it's just an unprecedented time. And, you know, I think what's obviously we all learn so much during periods like this, right? When you go into it, you just don't have the answers. When you come out of it, you probably still don't have the answers, but at least you've navigated something successfully that you've never thought you'd had to before. And therefore you have a layer of, uh, you know, a skill, uh, you know, a less, you feel a little more um, able to be able to navigate something like this in the future. It's just, you know, we're all listening now, as we said, like formally, we just would react. Now we're listening. And I think that's the big thing. Brands have learned to stop and listen and not just spitball communication ideas. You know, I think one of the things, <laughs> some of the brands I feel very sorry for are the brands that had plans to launch during COVID. And, you know, as you know, with indie beauty brands, these people don't have the luxury of waiting it out and launching and waiting to launch when sort of things are better. Um, You know, and, and a lot of them are sort of navigating this new normal. Um, But you know, I think there are some sort of tried and true probably kind of communication and and marketing strategies that can, um, that can be leaned on. Um, But, you know, you've worked with tons of brands over your 22 years. What are, and I think that some of the biggest learnings come from mistakes, um, but what do you think are the most common mistakes brands make when they launch? regardless like let's take of COVID or not yeah let's like like look beyond sort of the COVID framework um but just sort of in general well I think one of the biggest is just not knowing what you're getting into and not being well funded that's what I've seen like I've seen a lot of smaller brands think that it's a short haul to launch that they and they don't amass enough money like you really need a significant marketing budget. You need a, you need money behind you to do it right. You can't do it on the lean. And I've seen brands not really be prepared for that and think that they're going to execute like a six-month campaign and that it's going to be successful. And it's just, to me, throwing money into the toilet. Like you can't start the engine and then just let it die. You have to keep keep fueling this beast that has only become bigger due to all the omni-channel opportunities presented, right? And now we have like certain cases, earned media is not resonating. Well, then you have social media, you have influencer marketing, you have paid ads, you have all kinds of other tactics that you can try and you have to be prepared to try them to see what sticks. Like I heard this example of this guy, great, great company, guy launched a couple of years ago, but he can't play in the earned media you know, he has a clear point of differentiation, which is another thing I think is really important, but he can't play in the earned media game that hard because his cost of goods is so high. He can't sample to editors or he doesn't want to. And he's just, earned media isn't going to go as well for him as other marketing tactics would. Talking to the consumer directly is where his efforts should lie. And he's having tremendous success doing that, just cutting out earned media entirely, but he's cap- well capitalized. So he knows earned media is not working or won't work because I talk to him all the time about why it won't work. You know, I'm very 
I'm very honest about certain things. And I said, you know, you're, you're, you really should be talking to your consumer directly. You are a D to C brand, social media, maybe some select influencer marketing, but social media and paid advertising is really going to be where you're going to get the biggest return on investment, but he's well capitalized and he's, he knows he had to invest in his ad campaign for five months before he saw an ROI. And now of course he's ticking along and he's doing fantastic, even though this all happened during COVID. I mean, what advice are you giving to your clients to sort of or pivots you're telling them to make to break through the noise, you know, and deal with the reality that desk sides and events are probably out of the question until next year. It really depends on the brand. It's so hard to say one overarching piece of advice. I will say we've had some great success doing um, video desk sides, viral desk sides, you know, Skype, et cetera, Zoom meetings, etc. Like leaning on technology has been really fun during this time. And at first we were seeing, you know, the, the editors were a little apprehensive to take meetings because they thought, I don't want to do this and we'll be back in the office soon. And now they realize, actually, it's not so bad. It's pretty easy just to, you know, put on a nice top and put your hair in a top <laughs> knot and meet someone. <laughs> you know, so we have had some success doing that. It really depends on the brand. Some brands, I would say, don't bother, you know, and um, it's if the brand's a D2C brand, if the brand's, you know, relying on retail, it's very dependent. But there are, again, you know, certain things that there's a silver lining to any kind of struggle, and that's new efficiencies emerge that are going to really recreate the business as we formerly knew it. I mean, Kelly, you know this game. How often have we convinced a client to fly across the country to do death sides only for some terrible thing to happen the day before the subway shut down, the editors can't get to work, whatever it is, it just changes their time spent in New York doing death sides or heaven forbid an event. How stressful can events be? I mean, I remember doing an event in LA it was a workout class being led by gold medalist, Lindsey Vaughn. Nobody came. I didn't counsel doing the event. I was the one that said, don't do the event to the client. They insisted. And doing the event in LA, I was you know, thinking, oh, this is going to be a disaster. And sure enough, it was. But we don't have to worry about things like that anymore. We can counsel. If you're going to blow 30 grand on an event, I can think of 10 better, more effective uses for $30,000 that are going to be guaranteed of an ROI. You know, all these things had to go anyway. And the pandemic just sort of pushed them out the door a little bit. And so I think, you know, just crafting the message. And if you're not sure who's going to deliver that message, having that uh, conversation with your client, like clients aren't always the best people to talk about their product line. These conversations have to be had. You know, sometimes it's positioning a doctor in front of the line. Or, you know, a lot of people are very entrepreneurial, but they shouldn't media do media interface just the way it is. And so we've had some great challenges um, identifying like who that front person for line should be and who should talk to the media. And when we do that successfully, the media listens and these virtual things happen and they've been fantastic, I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think we're 
these are kind of defining times for businesses and leaders. You know, let's face it, not everyone's going to make it to the other side of this thing. Um, Some businesses are just fighting to keep their doors open while others are finding opportunities that didn't exist. Where are you sort of seeing, I guess, brands and founders, like what are, what are you hearing about sort of, you know, we're almost six months into this. And if you live in the U S still a very uncertain future heading into Q4, you know, what is, you know, you speak to lots of people, what's the word on the street? How are people feeling? Well, it's really very dependent on the category. Obviously some categories are booming. Anything to do with at home care is really booming. And I've seen, you know, look at the example of the, all the companies that have launched during COVID to capitalize on the at-home fitness trend. You know, like Peloton, he was a visionary, the CEO, what a visionary he was. But now he's got a lot of copycats coming at him and those are proving to be, some of them formidable companies that, that really embrace technology and, you know, are negating the need to go out of your home to exercise. And of course, in terms of beauty, there's all these beauty launches that have come up that are at-home devices that are doing very, very well, LED lights and et cetera. But there's certain categories that are stumbling, funny enough, including lipstick, because, you know, what was the old saying when lipstick sales, when the recession- The lipstick lipstick index. (laughs) The lipstick index. Thank you. It's the opposite of true (laughs) Yeah. because we have to wear a mask. Yeah. So lipstick isn't doing well, but you know, skincare, certain categories of skincare are doing very well and others aren't. I mean, if you're really reliant on your retail facing partnerships to drive sales and you didn't have that digital strategy in place, well, you better get one quick because um, you know, you're not going to survive without it. And of course, for brands, you know, D to C lines their pockets. You know, the margins are such a, what an attractive proposition to get that if you can get the D to C outreach right. But I do think there's always going to be some credibility, especially with the editorial community and having a, a retailer. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we definitely live in interesting times. And, you know, I think that we, I think we we definitely have sort of a long road ahead of us, even though the beauty sector is a resilient sector. Um, you know, it's it's really sort of navigating the unknown every day. You've owned your own business for for twenty two years. It's you know a PR agency, but it's not any different than you know you're just as much an entrepreneur as any brand owner, except you know your brand is yourself. You know, is there a piece of advice that you were given or that you would give um, to another entrepreneur that you think could have a profound impact on how they run their business? Yeah, that that question I actually wrestled with. I actually think not micromanaging and delegating and creating a team that you're able to delegate to is going to be your biggest friend. Because again, harking back to that piece of advice that I got from that business coach, I think we all can't do everything well. And identifying what you do well and leading with that and stepping off the things that you don't do well is going to enable your business to thrive. And I see too many people getting their hand in every pot and they basically don't get out of their own way. 
And I see a lot of big brand founders who could even be bigger if they just got out of their own way. I really believe that. And, you know, having those conversations with the people who have now emerged as sort of control freaks is a hard thing to do. But, you know, harking back to like, ever since the, I paid for that very expensive piece of advice, I've been living my life doing exactly like that, that, and it's been a lot more effective in terms of running my business. Well, I guess it was a worthwhile investment. <laughs> yes, it was. I don't think JP listened, but I certainly <laughs> <laughs> well, Susan, thank you so much for joining us today and thank for, you. you know, all your advice, you know, evolving with how sort of brands and PR agencies has changed um, is sort of a testament to uh, your skills as an entrepreneur for sure. Well, thanks, Kelly. I've always admired you and everything that you do. So that's very validating. For Susan, it's a matter of candor. No matter the message or the platform, transparency has become the currency of our digital age. Navigating today's always-on and digitally-powered media landscape, where something can go viral at a moment's notice, is a double-edged sword. On one hand, it can lead to insane traffic and meteoric sales, but the ugly underbelly is the call-out and cancel culture that has emerged. Both these inflection points require careful navigation to either maximize or manage, and that's where a good comms partner comes in. Susan has built a resilient agency grounded in her decades of experience across categories, but leaning into the new world order, creating content and driving conversations that move businesses forward. So in the end, it's a matter of candor. I'm Kelly Kovac. See you next time. Hi, I'm Susan Woods, and to me, it's a matter of candor. Why? Because I value honesty and the truth. And I think there's tremendous sentiment in being able to talk frankly to other people and to the business community that I represent and that I communicate with. It's a Matter Of is a production of Beauty Matter LLC, copyright 2020. You can find more content and insights on beautymatter.com and follow us on social media at Beauty Matter Official. This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard.